Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Turn your copies of the scriptures this morning to the book of Galatians chapter 6. We'll be in the first five verses of Galatians 6 this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Is that what you need this morning? You need your soul revived. There's no better place to turn to than the law of the Lord, God's word, which will revive our souls, care for our souls, tend to our souls this morning. It's the only place that we can turn to that will revive us, renew us, as God works through his word. We do pray that it would speak to us this morning, that he would speak to us through his word this morning, because it is the word that we need to hear. Wherever we are in God's word, it's the word that we need to hear. So would you stand with me as I read Galatians chapter 6, first five verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts collectively as your church be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We live in an ever-growing individualistic society. Our culture promotes thinking solely about yourself, only about you. And this shows a great dichotomy, a great separation between how we as Christians think and how the world thinks. To be true, you come to the Bible and the Bible talks about self, talks about who we are, who you are. But it comes at it from a particular perspective that is important, and that perspective is this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we think about ourselves, who we are, that's our starting point. It was Paul's starting point. In fact, that's what Jesus says as well, right? Where does, what comes out of our heart? It's a cesspool of sin. Thanks be to God that he can change that heart, renew that heart, make it new. 
the world has a different view of self. They see external problems, threats, or influences from the outside that hurt self, that harm self, but that the self usually, from a starting point, is pure and good. It's only contaminated from without. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we are contaminated from the inside. So the world, from their perspective, tells us to focus solely on what you want. You even hear the thing uh, society says, create a vision board. If you can just envision it, it will become a reality. They say focus solely on your needs. Focus on your feelings. Focus solely on what makes you upset. Focus on what calms you down. Now, this is not to say that we have no needs or no feelings or no wants or desires. The problem is when these become the ultimate priority and constant thinking in our lives, when these are set up on the pedestal of our lives so that we are only ever consumed by them and so consumed with our own self. And not only can they consume us, they can dominate us and they can hurt us and harm us. Individualism does reign, but it is no new problem. It was there in the Garden of Eden. It was there as Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And it began as an individualism that wanted to be separated from God. I can't determine what is right and wrong for myself. I can't determine what is good and evil for myself. I can take better care of myself then God can take care of me. And Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was withholding something from them. That God really was not good. And isn't that our problem? We don't want God to withhold anything from us. And in fact, if we go our own way, we will ensure that we will not withhold anything from ourselves. And the error is to think that we can be fully satisfied with self. You cannot. You are unable to satisfy your own soul apart from God. And that, yet that is what individualism says and persists to say. And it has continued for centuries but it has never provided what the self wants. It has never provided what the individual wants. It continues to endure and it invades everything, but an individualistic society is a fragmented society. An individualistic home is a dysfunctional home. An individualistic self ends up being a tormented self. You can see that in the Bible. One simple phrase comes at the very end of the book of Judges. The very last verse of that book says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's the problem right there. No king, and everyone became their own little king. And they decided what was right in the kingdom that they ruled over. You can summarize that statement maybe even more simply by saying it was a mess. That's probably an understatement, but it's true. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes puts humanity on a steep downward incline away from morality, away from integrity, away from holiness, away from godliness, and ultimately away from God. Yet what does the world say today? We can do what's right in our own eyes. Individualism and the complete focus on self requires no humility The value of our interaction with other people is only done for what we get out of it. Others are only there to help us get ahead, to make us look better, to promote our praise. Others are there to make us feel good about ourselves. But this is not the way it's to be in the life of the church. 
We are not to live in an individualistic way. We are to live together in unity, live together as a family, live as one people who bear the name of Christ. We are to live in community together. We are to live together in love. This is what sets us apart from the world. It means that we must, though, live in humility, humbling ourselves before God first and also expressing humility towards each other as well. Humility is not merely an internal reflection of one's character or heart. Humility is practical. It's displayed in the way that the the church lives together. It's not enough to say, I have humility. Humility is seen in what you say and do or in what you don't say or don't do. Humility is demonstrated in your care for one another. Before we come to Galatians 6, verse 1, we have just been warned in the previous verse about conceit in the church. And so that's how I'm viewing what Paul now goes into in chapter 6, what he just said in verse 29, or 26, excuse me, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. That's the verse that's steering the ship here as we go into these verses. If you are conceited, if you are desiring the glory, then Galatians 6, 1 through 5 will not happen in the church. We are those who are to be clothed with humility. And so Galatians 6 gives us concrete examples of what it looks like. If you are clothed with humility, if humility exists within the congregation, this is what's going to be happening. If you're putting off conceit, If you're not provoking or envying one another, then here's the life that you should be living in the church. So what does humility practically do in the life of the church? What does humility practically do in the life of the church? You can follow along and outline in your bulletin, but number one this morning, humility helps you restore others in the church. Humility helps you restore others in the church. Restoration is something that often captivates our attention. In fact, there's whole television programs or series promoted to restoration, whether it's restoring cars or motorcycles or household items to even whole houses themselves. There is something in us that likes to see something old, junky, and what appears to be useless restored, made like new again, once again useful. The church is dedicated to restoration as well. We are, after all, God's restored community. And we are still being renewed in our minds day after day after day, therefore, we have not yet arrived. Yes, we have been restored, but we are still being made new. We are still growing. We are still being made holy, sanctified. And we never will arrive until until we see our Savior face to face. But we must see that the church is not only a restored community, but we are a restoring community. And this is what Paul instructs us on in verse 1. Brothers, he says, he's teaching and exhorting and commanding out of a love for the church. These are the brethren. These are the brothers and sisters. He says, if you are brothers and sisters, treat each other like brothers and sisters. Treat each other like family. Give of yourself. You cannot be indifferent to one another and and believe that you are responsible for building up the body of Jesus Christ. But then he says, here is the problem. What is the problem? If anyone is caught in any transgression, notice what he says there. There's no distinction. Anyone. It could happen to anyone.
what happens to this anyone, this person in the church? They are caught in any transgression. That word caught carries the idea that sin or transgression has overtaken someone. It may have caught them unexpectedly. It may have surprised them. It may have caught them unawares. They may have let down their guard and find themselves now caught by sin. That's the way that sin works. You give it an inch, and it wants to dominate your whole heart. The transgression here is sin against God. You have disobeyed God and His ways. And let's be clear what this looks like for anyone who is caught in any transgression. This isn't just one sin. This isn't just one sin that you happen to see. And maybe it comes like this. Hmm, I've never seen that in that person before. Never seen that. Maybe it's unusual. We're not just talking about one sin that someone commits, happens in their life. Maybe it's a sin that they, they would commit and then they are quick to repent of that particular sin and turn away from it. They do not give it a foothold in their life. So it's not merely just one sin, but this also is not one who makes a practice of sinning. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 and 6 say this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so who is the Apostle John talking about? He's talking about someone outside the church, that they make a practice of sinning. It's their lifestyle. The unbeliever, they persist in sin. Their determination is to continue to sin, and so they evidence that they are not a true follower of Jesus Christ. This person, however, in Galatians 6, is the person that has been caught in sin, neither of those extremes. This isn't just a one-off, but this is not a constant practice of their life. And yet there is some pattern, most likely a blind spot. They don't see it, they may not recognize the sin, and they need someone to come alongside them and help them, show them their sin, and caringly lift them up out of their sin. So who is going to help? The one who is spiritual. Who is the spiritual? Who is that person? This is not some special status of a, of a Christian, some elite Christian, some Christian who is above all of the rest. The spiritual person is, I believe, what Paul has already said in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do you know who the spiritual person is? Well, they live by the Spirit and they keep in step with the Spirit as well. The person who is caught in transgression is not in step with the Spirit. They are out of sync. They are out of step, even grieving the Holy Spirit of God by their sin. The spiritual person, on the other hand, is in step with the, per with the Spirit. They are one who are exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And so we are all striving toward this end with the help of the Spirit. So let us not shrink from our own responsibility then. If you are spiritual, as Paul describes it here, this is your responsibility. It's not just for some upper echelon, super Christian who's made it, like you have an S on your forehead. Who is that? Oh, that's the spiritual Christian who's just walked through the doors. We should all be living and walking by the Spirit. But unfortunately, we know that anyone can be caught in a transgression. And the spiritual person needs to bear their responsibility and help restore the one who is caught in sin. That's what they are called to do, isn't it? They are called to restore the one caught 
in sin. The word restore here is used of the disciples in Matthew and Mark when it says that they were mending their nets. They were restoring their nets. They were taking their nets and they were fixing them. Restoring the nets for what purpose? So that they would be useful again. The restoration that is taking place in the heart of the believer is ultimately done by the work of God through His Word, but the means which God does this restoring work is through the spiritual person. You see the beauty of God's design? Who is it that restores heart? Hearts? Who is it that renews minds? Who is it that helps people bring them out of their sin? Ultimately, it's God, but He uses us. He uses spiritual people to come into their lives and help them and care for them and love them. It's a restoration to spiritual health. It's restoration to fellowship. Restoring one's fellowship first and foremost to God and restoring one's, restoring one's fellowship to the church. You are to help your erring brother or sister back to the position where they are once again a fully functioning, useful member in the community of the church. And this is God's grace on display. When this happens, it's God's grace Do you recognize that as God's grace? Would you say, thank you, God. There are other people in the church who care about me that much. It's your grace upon my life. Just like the grace that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. What did they do after they sinned? They sewed fig leaves together and they went and they hid themselves. And then what did God do? God came and found them. Where are you? Why are you hiding? God's confrontation of their sin was the most caring, the most loving thing that he could do, and it was his grace in that moment. You want to see God's grace in the church it happens even here. Grace deals with sin. Grace does not let people go on in their sin. The one who is caught in any transgression, they are like an out-of-joint member in the body. Have you ever seen someone who has dislocated a member of their body? It's disgusting. I don't know, that's the best way I could put it. It's disgusting. It, you look at it and you know this, this arm, this leg, whatever it is, it's, something's out of place. It's not right. And it will not work again properly until it's put back into joint. Imagine that you saw someone walking around with something out of joint. And they came up to talk to you, right? And their arm's like a different direction, right? And you're trying to have a conversation with this person. And you can tell something's wrong, but you don't want to look at it, don't want to acknowledge it, don't want to say, let me help you put that back into joint so you can use it again. They might be were unaware that something was out of place, but it was as plain to you as the nose on their face. What do we say in those moments? Well, They'll figure it out sometime and fix themselves. Or do we know that it's there and we say, I'm not going to touch that. No, not, it's not my job. They really need to get it together. And how awful if that's the way we are to treat each other in the body of Jesus Christ. We are not called to ignore such sin. We are not foretold to pretend like it's not there. 
We're not to sweep it under the rug and think that somehow, magically, it will take care of itself. We deceive ourselves if we think that. It's wrong for us to think that as private members of the church that we should have nothing to do with such matters. And this is dangerous because such thinking does not represent Christ in the church and it does not represent Christ to the watching world. An accurate representation of Christ testifies to Christ in the church body, and it means that we will restore one another. Why do you think that Jesus talks of church discipline the way that he does? He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, what? You have gained a brother. There it is. Restoration. That's the goal. That's the point. That's what you want. You want your brother back. You want your sister back. If they're caught in that transgression, there's something that's not allowing the fellowship to happen. And it festers and it grows and it's like gangrene. Here's the good news. Restoration is possible. Restoration is not meant to humiliate. It's meant to build up brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It's meant to strengthen the church. It brings glory to Christ when his body is working properly and is in full health. So how is this spiritual person supposed to restore the one who's caught in any transgression? With gentleness. These are people's souls. We're not bulls in, China, in a china shop. We're doing it with gentleness because we are in step with the Spirit. We are exhibiting the gentleness of our Savior Jesus Christ as we point our brother or sister to Him. When we hear that word gentleness, do not think of weakness. And we should also not think of timidity. But we are gentle in speaking the truth in love. Listen to what Ephesians says, verses 4, 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that what? So that it builds itself up in love. It is firmness that is mingled with humility. Even though you must speak the truth, even though you're to point them to the Word of God, even though you're to point them to Jesus. You must do it, though, because then you will be caring for them through confrontation. But where does this humility and where does this gentleness come from? It comes from having a right view of yourself, your own weakness, and your own propensity to sin. Is that what Paul says next? Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You are prone, dear brother and sister, to be caught in the same sin. Do not think of yourself as high and mighty, but see, this could be me as well. I could fail, I could fall in the same way. And listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, what? Lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How prideful and haughty it is for the one who thinks that they are above being caught in any transgression. 
And they say things like this. That will never happen to me. I'll never be caught. I'll never fail like they did. I'm so far above that. I'm immune to that. Never going to touch me. No need to worry. No transgression will ever overtake me. When you say that, I fear you are already on the road to being caught, if not already caught. The concrete example of restoring a brother or sister in Christ falls underneath this broader, care, uh, broader category that Paul gives us in verse 2 with a command. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here is the command that we are to obey. The burdens that Paul speaks of here include the burdens that are brought about by sin in one's life, just as we saw in verse 1. But the word that Paul uses also can expand to include other burdens that are not just sin. They can be burdens that come with uncontrolled circumstances in your life. They can be burdens brought about by other people in your life. There are many heavy burdens that you will experience as a Christian. Many things that will weigh you down. Many things that will be too heavy for you to carry alone. Why doesn't Paul just say, why doesn't Paul just say, take all of the burdens that you have and cast them on the Lord? Oh, we've outsmarted Paul. Why did Paul just say that? We could quote verses like these, Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Should we just do that? Do we need to do this as well? Bear one of those burdens? Just throw it on the Lord. You're good. I think that Paul says this because bearing one another's burdens shows that you have cast your burdens on the Lord. We are not bearing one another's burdens apart from Christ. The only way we are able to bear one, one another's burdens is because of Christ. And so bearing one another's burdens is how you show that you have cast all of your burdens upon the Lord. Paul does not say, just cast your burdens upon the Lord, and that is all you need. Yes, that is primary. Yes, that must happen first, but it never stops there. Let's be honest. We all have burdens. And God does not mean for us to carry them alone. So let's not pretend like we don't. It's like those boxes that you ever, have you ever seen those boxes and on the box somewhere it says team lift? What does that mean? When I see that, it's a challenge. Team lift. I think I could do it by myself. I don't need anyone else. I can lift that box on my own. Is it ever like that in the church? Team lift. I got this. I'm good. Let me just take off my jacket and I'll lift that box no problem. God does not mean for us to carry our burdens alone. When you bear the burden of others, you are making their load lighter. Lifting together requires less than trying to lift by yourself. Our burdens were never meant, never designed by God to be carried on our own. That's why he's given us one another. That's why he's given us the church. 
Because he says, you're going to have burdens that are so heavy, that are so massive, there's no way that you can carry them on your own. I'm humbling you with these burdens. I'm humbling so that you, so that you have to use other people's help, other people's encouragement, other people's lives. And how awful it is when some of us try to bear it on our own. Bearing your own burden is pride. You might think it's a sign of strength. You might think it shows maturity. You might think it is impressive. Wow, look at them. They are bearing their own burden. But actually it shows weakness, immaturity, and it is unimpressive because it is not how God has designed the Christian life. going against God's design. This bearing one one another's burdens is fulfilling the law. This is the same law that Paul Paul talked about in Galatians 5.14 when he said, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Bearing one another's burdens is a display of love. A love that is not self-directed, but a love that is selflessly directed toward other people. It is such a love that we know in Jesus Christ. How is it? How is it that we're going to be able to bear one another's burdens? Because Christ has borne our burdens first. Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, For what? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. How is it that we can bear one another's burdens? Because we have a glorious Savior, a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has already borne our burdens. The greatest burden being our sin. He bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What a great weight has already fallen off our back when we have come to Jesus Christ because he has saved us and delivered us from the greatest of burdens, that eternal condemnation and death. When you bear the burdens of others, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. Why? Because you're acting like Jesus Christ. You're being Christ-like when you bear each other's burdens. Do you know the burdens of others? How can you bear their burdens if you don't, don't know them? You can't. Bearing each other's burdens is not for the faint of heart. It will be messy. It will be difficult. These things are heavy. They will weigh you down. But as we do it, as we, as we love each other and bear each other's burdens, we display the glorious gospel both in the church and to the world. And so humility helps you restore others in the church. Number two, humility prepares you to be held accountable by God. Humility prepares you to be held accountable by God. These two points, while I have separated them, really are connected. And so we must not miss the connection Because if we do, we miss the power of what Paul is saying to us. The connection between point one and point two, from humility helping us restore others in the church to humility preparing us to be held accountable by God, is this. Accountability in the church is absolutely necessary because one day you will be accountable to God. 
Accountability in the church is absolutely necessary because one day you will be held accountable by God. So let's not separate those two. Here again is the danger that we face in verse 3. People who think they are something when they are nothing. Paul says this is self-deception. You deceive yourselves if you think that you are better than you really are. It comes so easy, so natural to us to think of ourselves in this way. It's easy for us to think of ourselves as something special. I don't need to restore brothers and sisters. I don't need to keep a close watch on myself. I don't need to bear the burdens of other people. All of that's beneath me. We lie to ourselves because we do not think of ourselves with sober judgment. Here again, conceit creeps in. And what happens? Those do not help other people in their struggles, but they live in isolation from others, and they're guilty of pride. It's such arrogance that actually cuts you off from the lives of other people. Here's a good gauge. If you're impressed with yourself, there's a problem. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself in the church? I'm something in the church. I got it together. Know what I'm doing. I'm impressive. How easy it is for people to think there's something when they're really nothing. And so they're deceiving themselves, caught in their own deception. I mean, think about this even in the book of Galatians. The Galatians could be saying this because we are obeying the law. We got it together. We're going to hold this law, and this law is going to give us the assurance that we're saved. It's going to do something in our lives. It's going to justify us. Paul saying, it's not anything. It's nothing. Don't think of yourself as something when you're nothing and deceive yourself. But the contrast is, so how should we view ourselves then? Well, let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So first, let's think about that. Let each one test his own work. How do you do that? How do you test your work? You do it in light of Scripture. Does my life line up with what the Scripture says? All that I'm doing, the work that I'm doing, does it line up with the grace of God? Is it motivated by the grace of God? Is it the fruit of my faith? I have this great faith in Jesus Christ and now there's this abundant and amazing fruit that's coming out of my life because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Is your life obedient to the word? And then he says... And then his reason to, will, be to, will be to boast in himself alone. Wait a second, isn't that the opposite of what the Bible says? The Bible says boast in the Lord. How is this person now, or how are we supposed to be boasting in ourselves alone? Well, first, I don't think that this boasting is apart from God. This one recognizes their absolute dependence on God's grace and the Spirit for anything that is useful that they would do for the Lord. And notice it's also future. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. This is not necessarily even a present boasting. This is some kind of future boasting that is taking place. And I think even more so, the emphasis here is not necessarily on the boasting in ourselves or 
ourselves alone, but the, the, the problem that Paul is addressing is our tendency to take credit for other people's accomplishments. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That's the problem right there, isn't it? Sometimes we want to take credit for what other people have done, how other people have lived. It's almost like the dreaded group project that you would have to do in school. You ever, ever have to do that? A group project in school? And there was maybe one person who would do all of the work and everyone else would just kind of ride that person's coattails. I hated group projects. What is Paul saying here? He'll say, he's saying, you can't take credit for what other people have done. Test your work. Make sure that it's pure and right before the Lord. And here's the reason why. For each will have to bear his own load. Again, future. Each will have to bear his own load. And so I think Paul here is looking forward to the future again. This future time when each will have to bear his own load is at the day of judgment. This is when you will have to bear your own load. This is when you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. And it's on that day that you will have to bear your own load. Does this verse contradict, this last verse, does it contradict verse 2? Paul just said, bear one another's burdens, but now he's saying, now each will have to bear his own load. No, I do not think this contradicts. We bear each other's burdens now, but there will come a day when you and you alone will have to give an account for how you lived your life before God, the choices that you made, the lifestyle that you lived, your own actions, your own thoughts, your own will that you followed. There will come a day when you, you personally, will be judged. You won't be judged by who your parents were, you won't be judged if you were brought up in church. You won't be judged by how many good and godly Christians that you knew in your life. Your life will be assessed by God himself. In his glory, in his majesty, in his holiness, you will stand before God. And Paul is saying, assess your own life before God now because when you get to that final day of God's assessment, only his assessment is really what matters. It won't matter how other people thought of you. What does God think of you? How does God view the life that you lived? Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says this, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You die once. After that comes the judgment. But that's why Christ was offered to bear the sins of many so that when he comes again, all those who are eagerly waiting for him, all of those who have put their faith in him, all of those who have had their sin borne by him, will escape that final judgment. Will be welcomed into eternal glory. will not have God's wrath put upon them, but will know the immensity of God's grace. Notice the balance that we've talked about this morning. God has called you to humility in the context of the life of the church, to live in fellowship and to live in love with one another. And that accountability and that humility prepares you to stand before the Lord as you will one day have to bear your own load. What will the Lord say to you on that day? 
Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or will he say, depart from me. I never knew you. Will he find one who has cultivated humility in the community of the church? Or will he find one overcome with pride who has only ever done what is right in his own eyes? Philippians says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You will be humble. The question is, is that now or is that later? And for the Christian, there need not be any fear on that day if Christ has paid for your sin and given you eternal life. And that you know the humility of the one who humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. That's when Humility in the life of the church becomes practical. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word has instructed us this morning, cared for us, and brought us to you, brought us to the truth, Father, I, I pray that we would see this need in our church at times for restoration. We would not be blind to that. We would not think that we are better than that. We would not think that somehow we have arrived past that point. But that we would restore one another in love, and grace, and tenderness and gentleness with all mercy. And that we do that with this big view of how much grace you've given to us. We did not deserve to be saved, yet you saved us. We did not deserve to be found, yet you found us. We did not deserve to be resurrected from the dead, yet you gave us life. And so, Father, may we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in this church so that you might receive all of the glory and all of the praise for how you are actively working. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.